Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Hi, and welcome to the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. And uh, a podcast that I have now been procrastinating for about five days straight. (laughs) We are in the middle of a yoga teacher training right now, and it's busy as always. And for some reason, I've just, I've had a hard time, not just carving out the time to sit down and record. I have this feeling almost like there's something I'm avoiding. (laughs) So today I finally made the space. I get into the bedroom, set everything up to record. And then somehow I find myself scrolling through freaking Instagram for 30 minutes, still sitting here, not recording. And then I realize, oh, wait, I want a cup of tea. And I go make a cup of tea. And then as I was making a cup of tea, I saw one of the dogs had made a mess. And I'm like, oh, I got to clean this up. And and then, you know, what do you know, hours later, and I still haven't recorded. I am usually not a procrastinator. My husband is the master procrastinator in our relationship. So sitting here right now, having avoided this podcast, I'm wondering what I'm actually avoiding. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to the show, you guys. I, uh, I have a lot of things I want to share today, but something really specific that's been on my mind, mainly because I haven't done an episode around this. We've been moving through a lot of different challenges in this way lately, and I've spoken about it, but I haven't been able to really sit down and, and process and digest and share. What I want to talk about today is failing. Hmm. Failing. Failure. We all relate very differently to the idea of failure. I am the kind of person that I I don't like to fail. I don't like the idea of failing. Even if there's something that I've set out to do and it doesn't really go the way I've planned it, I would rather spin and twist it in my head as, oh, okay, but it worked out anyway. Or, you know, well, what did we learn from this? Or, you know, can I find a little bit of a silver lining in this thing? But to be super, super honest, I haven't had a lot of big failures in my life. And I've been thinking about this a lot because lately we have been moving through some things that haven't been going our way. And there's definitely a big area that I can sit now and confidently say that 
we failed at something. And so I've been meditating on this and really thinking about this and, and, you know, looking back at, because I had someone ask me in an interview, you know, so what are some things that, you know, how do you react to failure? And what are, are some things in your life where you've really failed or areas where you really, really didn't succeed? And I had to sit with that, like, huh. <laughs> and I don't want to sound arrogant or sound arrogant or cocky, but honestly, in my life, I have very, very few moments or things that I wasn't able to kind of make go my way. So even in areas or moments where I've been moving toward failure or where it seemed like, oh my God, we're not going to make it. Somehow I have been able to use that as fuel to haul ass and make sure that we made it in the end. (laughs) So I actually had a really hard time answering that question. And of course, the definition of failing or failure, then you have to define success. So what does it mean to be successful or to fail at something? And that's what I want to talk about today. The reason this has been on my mind lately is two reasons. One, I am now in therapy. I've, I've talked to you guys about that a little bit. It's going really well, I think. I don't know if there's a way to measure. Am I succeeding at therapy? Look at where my mind goes immediately. I like to judge and label things as, you know, am I, am I, am I doing well here or am I not? But yeah, so every session I have, I am learning something new about myself and I'm starting to peel away some pretty serious layers and ideas and beliefs that I've had about myself that aren't necessarily true. And one of those beliefs that I've had is that I have to succeed at everything all the time. I have to be really good at everything all the time. I have to, you know, get all A's. That was my, this idea that I had in school, always, always, always have to get all A's. I have to be great at whatever I set out to do. And, you know, for me, being mediocre at something or so-so or not, you know, giving it my 110% just doesn't exist as an option. I just, I'm not that kind of person. And of course, this has served me in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's served me in that we have a a thriving business and, you know, I have a beautiful career and a lot of things that go my way in that sense or have gone my way in the past in that sense. But there's also this sense of rigidness there. I don't know, there, there's, I'm really feeling into the space right now what it, what's been driving me this time when it comes to wanting to succeed at the things I set out to do. Has it been this passion for what I'm doing and just the joy of putting something awesome out into the world? Or am I also fueled by this, this relentless idea that to be worthy or to be accepted, to be worthy of love, to be worthy of attention, to be worthy of of being seen and taking up space, I have to succeed. I have to produce something. I have to work and I have to work really, really hard. So I have these two sides to me and both of them are true. And one side, the side to my, you know, that's been kind of fueling my business and this, this drive that I have for a long time, of course, is that I love what I do. And I get to work in a field where I get to help people and watch people, you know, find tools for healing and change their lives and be a part of something that feels really heartfelt and loving and beautiful. And then there's this other side that's really harsh and strong and firm and relentless that doesn't give up, that works a little bit too hard, that doesn't really know how to slow down, that doesn't know how to take breaks, that doesn't really actually understand fully the definition of rest. (laughs) And it comes from this limiting belief that I have 
And I, I posted to Instagram about this a couple of days ago, but I'm learning these new terms. So a limiting belief we all have in certain shapes or forms, limiting beliefs that drive us in life. And a limiting belief is a belief that we have about ourselves or a belief that we have about the world that is holding us back. So a belief that isn't bringing us forward, that isn't helpful, but it limits us, it limits our worldview. It might limit our well-being. It might limit our ability to, to feel love. It's, it's limiting. And I have a couple of them, <laughs> a lot of them defining them and realizing like, oh, wait, I am living my life after this belief that's actually, maybe it was true at some point in my life, but it's not true anymore. Or maybe I started believing this, I came to this belief from a place of not having enough or from a place of fear or from a place of, of pain or maybe from a trauma that I had in my childhood, right? We all have these things that happen in our past and then somehow we grow up with these ideas about the world. And the cool thing about it is if it's a limiting belief and it's holding us back and we can see as adults, oh, hey, this isn't even true, right? Or it doesn't have to be true, but somehow I continue to make it true, which means that we have control. Um, we can choose to work with that limiting belief and maybe even to change it into something else that isn't as limiting, something that's fueling or, you know, that really allows us to expand and move forward and evolve and live a really beautiful and healthy life. So one of these limiting beliefs that I've had is I have to succeed at everything I do. And, and I've been sitting with this because oh, it's not a fun thing to admit either. <laughs> I'm kind of, I feel like I'm past the hump of this podcast where I literally have no boundaries <laughs> anymore, where I don't, you know, I, I don't feel any fear of, of being, I don't think there's such a thing for me anymore in this podcast to be too vulnerable. You guys know me inside and out, but yeah, it's not a super fun thing to, to admit to yourself or to the world that, Hey, a part of my drive comes from this very limiting belief that I have to succeed at everything I do or, or what? So when I was growing up and I was little, there were moments in my life or years of my life where I was lacking what I can see now for different reasons. Yeah. For reasons that make total sense and reasons that I can acknowledge and sit with without feeling any resentment toward anyone in my life. There's no resentment toward my parents, toward things that happen. It's just, it was what it was. And it made me in this way, it made me who I am today. But so from not having what I can see now really in my own daughter, which is so beautiful to, to get to live now that she lives in the space where she is a hundred percent trusting at all times. She's a hundred percent comforted. She's held at all times. There's never a moment in her life where she has to look around and see if it's safe to, to exist in her life. Right. She's not undergoing any trauma. There's no violence in the home. She isn't lacking anything. You know, there's no, no abandonment. Everything is safe and held and beautiful. I almost feel like I have to knock on some wood. <laughs> like, dear universe, please like let us let us keep this safe space forever. But yeah, she's she's held and she's loved and that love is totally unconditional and she's so loved by so many people. And not saying that my parents didn't love me. My parents definitely loved the living crap out of me and still do. But I grew up under these circumstances where my parents, for a variety of reasons, were moving through their own traumas, right? Where they were moving through really heavy, heavy, difficult things like depression, um, suffering through loss, um, traumas of different kinds that, of course, if we're moving through a trauma or experiencing super intense grief or, you know, 
struggling with our mental health, it's going to be really hard to give our children the things that we don't know how to give to ourselves, right? It's going to be really hard to give that kind of unconditional love and trust and support and a feeling of being totally held and supported to our kids if we don't have our feet on the ground, if we are wobbly ourselves. So those were my circumstances when I was little. And it's kind of nice, honestly, because um, I've moved through so much of this in my life. I mean, I've done so much work around this uh, and had so many years of my life where I felt resentful toward my parents that they should have done things differently or why couldn't they have done better or why couldn't they have taken better care of me or, you know, resentment for different things. And now I honestly can say I don't feel that way anymore. I can still grieve and feel sad for the, for my inner child or the little girl I was that was lacking those things when I was little, but I don't feel any resentment toward them. And I can also see how, how cool it is. <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing to say, but I can kind of see how cool it was that it played out exactly that way because it led me to me sitting here now able to to have a totally different life situation, right? Able to birth my daughter into a totally different scenario. And also being in this very conscious place where I can see what I was lacking and consciously choose to do something different for my child, right? So I, I'm kind of going about this from this place of everything happened the way it happened because it had to be that way. And how do I know it had to be that way? Because that's what it was. So yeah, but so I had this, you know, when I was little, especially my when my stepfather died, it was really traumatic in a, in a plane crash when I was little. I was uh, four, about to turn five. And my mom, of course, went into this total depression and didn't want to live and tried to commit suicide and all these things happened. And I started at that age, which is super little. Uh, a couple of things happened. One was that I immediately had to pick up a lot of the duties and responsibility for things in the household and at home. And I'm not sure, you know, how much of this was, was, you know, hundred percent, you know, necessary and actionable, you know, in our lives, like material day-to-day -day lives at that time. But I, I fully remember having this, this absolute overwhelming sense of responsibility that I had to do things to move the family forward. Right. I, I, I remember having these feelings all the time that I was really scared for my little brother's safety all the time. Like if I wasn't there to hold his hand when we crossed the street, then no one would hold his hand. You know, there was this feeling like no one was looking after us, that we were we were kind of all alone, which I think even if my, my parents were there, I think moving through that kind of grief and not wanting to live. Yeah, for sure. In a major way, I think my mom checked out and she wasn't present. And she wasn't there to hold our hands, right? And I took on that responsibility of, okay, I am in charge of keeping my brother safe. So I had to take on this kind of adult role really early. And other things, you know, like like making food or making breakfast and cleaning up my room and, um, I don't know, making sure that things worked, like blowing out candles at the end of the day. Uh, this just overwhelming feeling of, of I am in charge now, right? I, if I don't do these things, they're not going to happen. If I don't make breakfast, I won't eat breakfast, which of course is, is a lot for a four and five-year-old girl to carry, a lot, too much. So that kind of responsibility, right? That overwhelming feeling of I have to move this ship forward or it's going to sink, right? I've had that feeling since I was four and a half years old and I still have that feeling today. Uh, that feeling of if I don't do it, no one does it. 
if I don't, you know, drive the car, we're not going to go anywhere. If I don't keep, you know, stay in charge of absolutely everything, if I don't know where everybody is, someone's going to get lost. If I don't pack the bags, we're going to forget something. If I don't, and it started out at that really, really young age, but it became this very, very serious, you know, core belief that I have lived almost my, my entire life with, that if I don't do it, it doesn't happen. Or if I, if I'm not in control, things are going to turn to shit, right? It's like, it's not safe to be here. So I have to control everything and make sure that I am in charge of everything because I am the only one who can do it. And of course, you know, as an adult, I can sit here and say, hey, that's not true. You know, maybe even when I was little, maybe probably wasn't even true, right? I don't think we would have got, got into a place where we would be starving or, you know, but that was my belief. And those were the things that I took on at that time because of that trauma and living my life through that. If I don't do it, everything turns to shit. <laughs> One is hundred percent, absolutely like gut-wrenchingly exhausting, <laughs> exhausting, because it means for most of my life, I have never been able to take my eye off the ball. And I've lived my whole life with a sense of, I got to stay in charge of everything. I got to look at everyone. I got to make sure everyone is okay. I got to make sure everyone's fed. I got to make sure everyone's happy. I got to make sure everyone has what they're supposed to have. I got to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, I can't take my eye off the ball for one second because if I do, there's this overwhelming fear and sensation of everything's going to fall apart, right? So I've lived life that way and it's played out in so many different ways. Of course, you know, there were several years of my life where this actually really did serve me. I mean, all the way through my teens, um, always taking care of my siblings and always, you know, feeling like they were my responsibility, almost as if my, all of my siblings were my kids. That's how I felt growing up. Like I was really in charge of their well-being, not like my parents are in charge and I'm their older sister with older sister duties. No, I've had this heavy burden, baggage kind of weight of I am the one in charge of their well-being, which isn't true. And again, that the the limiting beliefs that we have it's, it doesn't really matter. We can sit here and from the level of our minds go, well, yeah, I know that that doesn't make sense. But if we feel and believe that it's true, it's going to show up in different ways in our lives anyway. And we can't undo that belief just by thinking our way through it, you know. And I've had so many moments of, of oh my God, okay, I'm so controlling. <laughs> I really am. I'm so controlling. Um, right now, actually, it's it's so funny because my my dad is here in Aruba right now. My brother is here in Aruba. He's two years younger than me. And then my dad, so my dad has seven kids. He has that one and a half month old, which means Leia Luna has an aunt that's younger than her. It's super weird. <laughs> and then he has a daughter that's six weeks older than Leia Luna, who's my half sister and a son who's who's four. So my half brother, it's, it's kind of weird and, and intense, but they're here right now. And I can immediately see these patterns that we have in our family, these family dynamics that we have that regardless of how old we get, regardless of how much we evolve, regardless of how much work we do, they're still there, <laughs> right? We're still going to play out these family dynamics the same, the same as, as they were when we were kids. It's just, that's how things are. But Dennis was making, Dennis and my dad and my brother were joking yesterday at dinner and I was kind of laughing at it because it's funny how, how we have these things that everyone is just aware, like that's the thing. 
when they were laughing about how controlling I am in terms of like, I want to pick the restaurant. And if we go to the restaurant, I'm going to look up the menu beforehand to make sure that there's things for the kids to eat, that there's things for me to eat, that there's vegan stuff, that everybody's going to be happy with the dessert. And then before we get in the car, like I want to know where we're parking and I want to, I want them to tell me where they're going to park so that um, so that I know that they have a spot there. Um, you know, I want to know, like, are the kids going to sleep at what time? And should I bring snacks? And, and you know, should I bring, like, stuff for them to play with? And what about later? What if it's too, you know, it's like a never-ending loop. And that's just who I am all the time. Traveling with me is fucking exhausting because I have to keep be in charge of everything all the time. And they were just like, you know, in a really loving way, like making a joke of like, ah, you know, like it's a little hard for me to just let go of control. And my brother was making a joke about us going on vacation and like, you know, it's like never really a vacation for Rachel because she's always working at something. And even before I had a career, before I was a teacher, before I had a business, all this stuff, like I still lived this way, right? Um, meaning that anytime we went on vacation, anytime we went anywhere, any time in my life, isn't it's never a vacation because I'm always worried in my mind about things that might go wrong. I'm always overthinking things and I'm always calculating very carefully how everything has to go down to make sure that everyone is safe. It's just, it's, it's in my, it's like in my backbone to do that. And, you know, and sometimes it serves us. Yeah, of course, you know, because this, this, you know, being this structured, being this, you know, I plan everything out super well, traveling with me, obviously, like we get to where we're going always, you know, there, we never have bad things happen. Like, you know, for instance, like my dad showed up, <laughs> we, we're going to dinner, like Leia Luna, you know, she sleeps, she has a nap schedule, always had, like, I make sure she's rested. I never go anywhere without snacks and things to play with. And, you know, and then my dad shows up for dinner and like the kids are his kids who are, you know, same age as, as mine, like red eyed with exhaustion, you know, and they've burnt in the sun. And he's like, oh, she didn't eat since one o'clock. And I'm just like looking at him and I'm like this, this mess. I'm like, dude, like, okay we got to go to the grocery store. You got to buy some fucking snacks. You need some fruits. Like you need to have sunscreen. You need to make sure like she's not even wearing like the right kind of underwear. Like where is her other shoe? Like what's going on? And I just look at this like mess of like, man. And then I look at Dennis and Mia Lea Luna, like, you know, everything in order all the time because I make it so right. And I get this immediate urge to like step into my father's life immediate and like okay let me fix this like let's go to your hotel room let's unpack your stuff put it away like she needs to sleep at one o'clock every day like no later she's still jet lagged like you need to go to bed at five not like 10 p.m you know and I'm telling him like what to do and he's like dude like I have seven children and I'm like yeah yeah and I have one and I'm doing this one the right way <laughs> and we're laughing at that but then I have to catch myself and go like yeah you know what not my kids they're not my kids and here's like like you know fun like fun fact there are parents all over the world who raise amazing children in amazing environments who turn out fucking great who don't have any everything planned out either right there's a hundred thousand ways to parent and usually like shit turns out okay you know and I'm just all of these little moments that I'm having right now I'm 
seeing myself the way I am and I can smile and go, oh yeah, okay, let's take a breath. Let's back off. Like, these are not your kids. It's okay if we like get to the restaurant late. It's fine. Like let the kids sleep in the stroller. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine. At the end of the day, even if things don't go my way, or even if I let go of control um, or things get a little bit messy, it doesn't mean that someone's going to die, right? doesn't mean it's going to be the end of the world. And that's what I'm trying to really retrain myself to figure out is and to live with is this this new idea that you know what happens if i if i let go of some of that control what happens if i loosen my grip a little bit and of course this huge huge limiting belief that doesn't serve me at all which is that i have to do everything on my own and i don't know if i'm moving through some sort of burnout right now which i kind of think that i am i i think it comes from that belief not so much you know the work I've done and da, da 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 and I should be sleeping more or whatever. It's this belief that I have that's really been running my life that I have to do everything on my own. Um, that's led me to this place of eventually, you know, I, I, I can't, no one can do everything on their own. And it's, it's a beautiful thing now to get to sit here and look at that and realize that I want to live in a different way. And I don't want to just delegate, which is what I've also been doing because, you know, for different reasons, because to make my life work, I'm delegating. I have a team. I have employees who do amazing work. You know, it's not like I'm running my entire business by, by myself. Of course not. I'm delegating. I'm, I'm asking for help. I'm getting other people to step in. But with this belief still ingrained in my system, I'm still living my life that way right? So the energy, that heavy energy that's accumulating on my shoulders, that I'm all alone, that it's just me, that if I don't make sure that we have food on the table, we're not going to eat, you know, which isn't true. You know, I have a husband who's super capable. I have people all around me who are super supportive. And yeah, objectively, I know like I can put this down. I can go take a nap. Like I can go to bed. I can probably even, which is something that I'm really playing around with in my head right now, take an entire year off work and we would still be okay. You are listening to the Yoga Girl podcast, conversations from the heart. As the saying goes, we are what we eat. The foods we eat impact our bodies so, so much. Eating foods that nourish your body means feeling your best too. For my listeners in the US, eating better doesn't have to be boring or bland. Just check out Sakara. Sakara makes organic, ready-to-eat meals with nutritious and delicious plant-based ingredients that are designed to help you feel like your very best self. Their meals are specifically designed to enhance your energy, improve digestion, and make you feel great in your body. The menu of chef-created dishes changes weekly, so you'll never ever get bored. When you order Sakara's meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner are delivered right to your door, ready to eat anywhere in the U.S. And if you're interested, you can also get supplements, teas, and support from a certified health coach to help you along the way. Sakara has received rave reviews from Vogue, Goop, the New York Times, and much more. So wherever you are on your health journey, Sakara is there to help. Right now, Sakara is offering you $60 off of your first order when you go to sakara.com slash yoga girl. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash yoga girl to get $60 off of your first order. Sakara.com slash yoga girl. 
Do scents evoke memories and transport you back to being on the beach during your favorite vacation? I know they do for me. Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil smells like summer or the beach in Aruba, bottled with all-natural, uplifting notes of mango, mandarin, grapefruit, lime, and cypress. But it's not just about the elevated scent. This body oil is clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and deeply moisturize, leaving skin silky and soft. It delivers that coveted post-vacation glow, like you just returned from a tropical getaway. And right now, you can get 10% off your first order with our code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. I love Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I use it every single day and I have for so many years. It makes me feel silky smooth and just glowing. This body oil is rich but never greasy and clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. It visibly firms your skin, leaving you more sculpted and toned. No wonder I feel so great after using it. But it gets even better. With Osea, you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Osea's products are clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. They are a women-founded company that has been making seaweed-infused skincare for over 28 years. So bring on summer. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skin and body care at Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. This for me is this slow undoing, right? It's a very slow learning and I have to do this step by step, one at a time. But yeah, so this is one of those major beliefs that I have. And then the second one, which is what I started talking about at the very beginning of this show, is this belief I have that I have to succeed all the time, that I have to succeed. So at that same time when I was when I was growing up and all of this, these traumatic things were happening and my mom tried to commit suicide and my dad left and moved away to another country and I was, you know, abandoned or left behind. Um, by by all the major, most important people in my life. So my stepdad died, my mom tried to die, and my dad left, um, which were the the three, you know, my three people that I had. And I, throughout that time, I started, you know, I, I instilling in myself this new belief, which was to be worthy of love or for people not to leave me, I have to be really great. So I can I can see and understand how it started. So all of these things were happening. And I, I remember so distinctly because my mom was super sad, right? So, so, so sad, so depressed. So I remember really realizing that, hey, I have to be really good now. Yeah, I have to not make a fuss. I have to not make a mess. I have to make sure that I do everything really well, right? Keep my room super tidy. Maybe if I draw her really nice drawings and paintings, that will make her happy. Maybe if I like make her breakfast in bed in the morning, that will make her happy. Maybe if I just get better at, at who I am, right? Maybe if I get better at doing things or I do things better and I don't fight with my brother and I don't make a fuss, then maybe she'll want to live, right? Then maybe she won't leave me. And this idea started from that, which is, you know, sensible. I was so little, I was five years old, but it grew into this absolute, like, oh, personality creating belief, right? It's something that I, that I really, really live my life by, which is I have to be the best. I have to be really great. I have to succeed at absolutely everything I do. So when I went to school, you know, I always had all A's, always, always, always not having an A or an A plus for me was not an option, like absolutely not an option. 
And I always did so well in school. Um, I graduated, what is the the school we graduated when you're <laughs> trying to think? Um, we, we call it different things in Sweden. But in Sweden, so when you're, the year you turn 16 or when you're 15, you graduate like one section of school. And then I guess you start high school, which is another school for three years somewhere else. Anyway, whatever you call it, what do you, what do you call it? Middle school, junior, high, <laughs> whatever. So I was 16, me and one other person in a school of, you know, huge school that we went to, got a scholarship and got to like, <laughs> we always had this graduation in a, in a church every year for summer. And I remember, so, I mean, I was 15 years old and I was, it was two people who got this scholarship and I had all A's, all of them, except in one subject, which was chemistry. And I can't I remember, and, I, and in my mind, I was like, I failed at chemistry. I flunked, I flunked chemistry. I got a B in chemistry, which in my head was I failed. And, and it was something like I was sick. I had missed this major test for some whatever reason. And I would literally lie awake at night agonizing over this test that I didn't ace, right? And I would like go to this teacher and ask for extra things I could do or, you know, how can I like turn this terrible grade around, right? How can I t turn this B into an A? And the guy was just wouldn't have it. But I was studying, so of course we get Swedish and English in school and I was studying Spanish, French and Russian. <laughs> I mean, I was... Like, listen, listen to this, like, right? Can you believe it? So Swedish English, which everybody like has to, to take. And then you get to choose, you get to choose between Spanish, German, or French as like one of the languages that you study. And I chose Spanish and French because I thought it would be like fun to do both. And then I added Russian on the site, which was this like extra credit type of, and you know, fuck, I was like so young, but I had like, and I had an extra subject more than everybody else. So I still counted as all A's, you know, because I got to like not show, I don't know even how, if you guys are getting, getting what I'm saying, but I studied one extra subject than everybody else did. So at the end of the day, I still had all A's, right? It didn't show. I still had all the max points that I could get. But I was up there on that graduation day as one of two people receiving this like scholarship thing, you know, with a speech from the headmaster and all this stuff and my parents, my whole family in the, in the audience, like so proud. And I remember standing up there thinking about that fucking B in chemistry that I had. <laughs> like I could not get it out of my head. You know, it was almost like all the A's I got and all the other subjects, all the other ways that I excelled and succeeded, you know, but it was all overclouded by this one B that I had in chemistry. And I can look at that now and like, oh, it makes me sad because I can see so many moments in my life that I had where I didn't allow myself to feel proud, where I didn't allow myself to fully celebrate the accomplishment of something that I did if there was even the hint of not accomplishing what I set out to do on the side or connected to that. And this is a great example of that. You know, I couldn't enjoy my all A's because there was a hidden B there. <laughs> It's like fucking ridiculous, but that's who I am. So this idea of failing, and it's something that I've been talking to with my therapist now, which is a sentence that I love to say. I'm now one of those people in conversation who like brings up their therapist, the idea of failing. And she was asking me, you know, so how, how do you feel about failure? Like, what is your reaction when you fail? And I didn't know how to answer that because failure for me is not an option. And that's a little bit, I feel almost ashamed saying that, but that is 100% true. 
So I, I never fail at anything. In my life as a whole, I never fail at anything. And it sounds arrogant saying that, but here's how I've made sure that I've spent an entire life not failing. So when I've ever gotten to a place where I risk failure, right? Where, ooh, suddenly I'm in this territory of, fuck, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Yeah, and, I'm, and I have an example also school related I'm going to share. Then I decide to throw my hands up in the air, make a 180 degree turn and go, fuck this shit. I am not interested. I'm not even going to play the game. I'm not even going to try. And I'm going to tell the world and myself that I don't care about this thing. So to avoid giving it my all and risking failure, I would rather drop everything, decide to not go for it at all, and then go with the, with the story of, I don't care about it which of course isn't true at all, at all. So a great example of this, also school-related, is when I, I started high school. Uh, and this was right around the time, so if you read my first or second book, I, I speak a little more about this, I think, in my first book. When I was 16, 17, I was in this really, 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 I mean, lowest point of my entire life. I was so unbelievably depressed. And I can really, you know, see that now and look back at that now. So I had a whole entire lifetime of, you know, a lot of traumatic things that happened in my life that never were addressed. You know, I'd spent my whole life up until that point when I was about 16, never having anyone to talk to, never ha ever having addressed the fact that, you know, I had so much loss and so much trauma and so much separation and and all these terrible things that happened in my life, but no one ever spoke about them. I never had an outlet. I never felt safe in my family, I never felt supported, held. I always felt like I was the one, you know, this, again, this belief, like I am the one who has to do everything. I have to do everything on my own. I have to succeed at everything. And it was also this other, we were in the middle of another traumatic time in our family because my mom had married a very abusive man and it was literally wasn't safe to, to be at home. So, you know, all of this kind of accumulating. And then I remember I had a boyfriend at the time, really, really sweet guy who I was together with my whole high school years. And I, I was on, I can't remember how it started, but we were having sex. I mean, I was 16. I don't know, in, in Sweden, it's like very accepted that people lose their virginity and ha have you, that you start having sex pretty early. It's really common. We call it Ungdomsmortagning. And it's this free place where all teenagers, I think up until you're 21, maybe even 25, I don't know. Yeah, I think 25, you go. Um, it's Planned Parenthood, basically, but it exists in every single city uh, it, across the entire country. It's always free. They promote it in all schools. So you can get contraceptives, you can get on the pill, you can ask questions, you can get condoms for free, you can get have an abortion, of course, all that stuff, like Planned Parenthood. And I remember because I was, you know, I had this very committed relationship and I was taking some sort of contraceptive. I don't know. I, it was like a one type of pill. I can't remember what it was, a contraceptive of some kind. And I got so beyond depressed uh, taking this contraceptive. I suddenly, I went from like being, feeling like I was really happy with my life to all of a sudden feeling like everything crashed down and I got totally depressed. And then they immediately took me off of it so I think I had like a couple of weeks only where I was taking this, these pills. They immediately took me off of them because it was clear, okay, we're not going to do that. And I ended up getting an IUD instead, like a non-hormonal IUD that I had for, for five years. But it was like the damage was done. It was like it, in my body, almost like my body had waited my whole life 
to, to finally get to a place where I could feel something. That's kind of how I look at it now. So it was almost like I got this hormonal push to get sad, right? To let my feelings show, to allow myself to be vulnerable and soft and cry, which I'd never done in my entire life. Like I never cried ever, 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 never showed any kind of sadness, vulnerability, softness. You know, I was always the strong one and the one to super cocky. And I would get into a lot of fights with my friends and things like that. And I would never show that I was ever sad or that I was bothered by anything. And then this happened and I got depressed and I spend about, I don't know, eight or nine months. So sad, so sad. Oh my God. So sad. I would lie in my bed all day long, watching movies, like eating chips and shitty foods and just cry and just cry and just cry and just cry. And I remember I had these like six movies that I had because this was like DVD time that I had that I would rewatch again and again and again. These kind of sappy movies like Steel Magnolias, Terms of Endearment. (laughs) And then there was like another one, like a Will Smith one, Hitch. Do you guys remember that one? I don't know, just a mix of like sappy love kind of movies that I would just watch and cry and watch and cry and watch and cry and watch and cry. And obviously this is kind of how I started my high school time. Didn't really reflect super well with my studies, right? Like I got super depressed, lost all energy and ability to do anything, managed to kind of stick with my grades. But at the end of the first year of high school and I was drinking a lot, I was partying like crazy. You know, I I just shifted completely from the straight eight, like good girl to basically, you know, hating everything. And of course it showed in my grades, right? So instead of at that time, when I started realizing like, hey, I'm not going to be able to keep up, you know, my all A, like the streak that I've had my whole life of all A's all the time. And I remember I had this moment of like, fuck, like, like, I'm going to have to really fight for this now, right? I'm going to have to really change my life. I'm going to have to kill it now. I'm going to have to really take a risk and, and study my ass off. And maybe at the end of that, I still wouldn't be able to keep, you know, to keep my grades up. And, and I can really remember this moment of like, man, I'm going to have to fight for it. And fighting for it might still mean that I don't make it, that I don't get good grades at the end of it, because, you know, I'd already lost a, like more than a year. And I had this little switch inside of me that just went, no, fuck this. No, no, I'm done. No. Who cares about school anyway? Who cares about school anyway? I don't care about school. School is for suckers. School is for idiots. School is for those like regular day-to-day regular Joes who like aren't going to go anywhere. I am way too cool for school. So fuck this shit. I'm out. <laughs> that was my my whole big thing. You know, I, I just put on a totally different kind of hat. Literally went from the person who loved school, loved to study, loved taking tests. I even loved like writing essays. Like I, like I loved school. It was my thing to, I hate school. School's the worst. Fuck school. Everyone can suck it. <laughs> I don't care. And for the entirety of my high school experience, I had 69% absence. <laughs> still says on my report card. I don't know how they let me graduate, honestly. At the end of the day, like my grades weren't that, like I would show up for tests and do okay, I think, do pretty well. Like sometimes I would rally and study for something that I cared about. But overall, I just adopted this idea of like, I don't even care, which wasn't true. I did care a lot. But having to risk really going for something, right? Really fighting for something and risking failure at the end of that was something that I couldn't take, something that I couldn't risk, couldn't do. Because in my mind or in my 
I guess in my core, like in my heart, I had this belief that if I don't succeed, I am not worthy of love. To be worthy of love, I have to be the best. To be worthy of love, I have to do great. To be worthy of love, I need all A's. I need to be a good girl. I need to not make a fuss. I need to, I need to be the best at everything I do. So risking not being the best, then it's, it's safer for me to just not do it at all, right? To just drop it and decide I don't care at all. Because then it's my choice. It's not failing. Then I could say, oh yeah, I didn't fail at high school. I just like, I didn't go to school. It was an active choice that I made. I partied instead. You know, I stayed home. I didn't even go to school. I was 69% absence. Like I didn't care about school. So yeah, that's why my grades are like this, but I chose them, which wasn't true, right? I cared a lot and I could have rallied 100% probably wouldn't have had all A's, but I would have graduated with way better grades than I actually did, which, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to make or break my life. No, but it's, it was one of the first moments of my life that I can really look back at now and, and, and see how at any moment in my life where I've ever risked failure, uh, I just, it, it wasn't an option for me. Then I would decide to, to go ahead and turn my entire life into a different direction. You are listening to The Yoga Girl Podcast, conversations from the heart. Now that the To Love and Let Go book tour has finally come to a close, it's been so great to settle back in at home and into my next adventure leading this yoga teacher training. One ritual that is really important for me during this busy time is to make sure our family still sits down to have dinner together every night. I'm always on the hunt to keep those dinners interesting and creative as cooking is one of my favorite ways to relax and then wind down after a long day. Whenever I'm looking for some really good inspiration, I head over to Bob's Red Mill's website and check out what they have to offer today. Today, I saw a recipe for vegan scalloped potatoes that I know I have to try ASAP. This recipe calls for Yukon gold potatoes, onion, vegetable broth, garlic powder, turmeric, paprika, parsley, and Bob's Red Milk garbanzo bean flour. It looks so creamy and rich and perfect for my dinner tonight. What you put into your body is just so important. So that's why I'm so thankful that companies like Bob Shred Mill produce quality products that I can stand behind. More than that, they give you ideas and recipes to actually make it happen. Head over to bobshredmill.com slash yoga girl to check out their awesome products and recipes and enter for a chance to win some really fun Bob Shred Mill goodies. One winner will be selected by random selection each month. And how is this showing up in my life now? Yeah, this is, of course, when it gets interesting. And it's it's kind of funny because Dennis and I, we have such different life stories, such different pasts. But in this area, we actually are really similar in a ton of ways. I was, when I was a younger teen, so I think from, from when I was 10, 10 until 14, I was really into athletics. Um, I was super fast. I still have a record what is it? It's, it's like the 60 meter, you know, the short distance, the 60 meter record for my age group when I was like 13 in the Stockholm district. Like I still owe that, <laughs> own that. Um, I was super fucking fast and I did the long jump, the high jump. My dad was, uh, was in the Swedish championships for high jump. He jumped like 205, super high. Anyway, so Uh, I was really into athletics when I was at that age. I really wanted to like follow my father's footsteps. And he was this kind of big name in this, in this community and all this stuff. And I was really good competing every weekend, like traveling to compete, doing really, really, really well. And then I had a race that I didn't win, right? I had one of those like 60 or a hundred meter races that I didn't win. And I was used to winning all of them. 
And I remember the next week after not winning that race, like I came in second or third and suddenly feeling like I didn't want to go to practice. You know, no, I'm not so into it. Like, mm, I don't want to get on the subway today, go all the way out to Briadeng, which is where I practiced um, almost every day. Like, I didn't want to mm, just kind of lost, lost the zest. And I remember my mom like, hey, like, why aren't you at practice? Like, go like, hey, you know, and after a couple of weeks of nagging me and hey, like, we're paying for this, like, what's going on? And, uh, and I just no, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling it anymore. And I can see now, it wasn't that all of a sudden I lost passion. It was that I failed, right? I didn't win. Not even failing. I didn't win. And I couldn't accept not winning. And the idea of going back and having to face that again was too much. And I just quit, right? Just totally quit. <laughs> and now I can kind of see, like, I wish I had a... I wish I had someone in my life. Like, I wish I had a big sister or a big brother in my life that could recognize these things in me, right? I wish I would have had someone to talk to, to work through these kinds of heavy emotions because of course I was too young to see them. I was too young to realize that, hey, it's actually, I never had anyone tell me really, <laughs> you know, it's okay to not be the best at everything all the time. Like, even with the Bs, right? Even in second place, even in last place, fuck. You know, I still love you. You're still worthy of love. You're still worthy of being seen, of taking up space. Like you still belong even when you're not winning. You still belong even when you're not producing, doing, succeeding. And I didn't have that at that time. And so many things I quit, right? So many things I decided weren't for me because of that. But of course, Life takes you where you're supposed to go, and I don't think uh, uh, an elite, <laughs> a career as an elite athlete <laughs> probably wasn't in the cards for me. But you know, so Dennis, when he was little, he was um, he was one of the best windsurfers on on the entire island here, and windsurfing was huge when he was growing up. Really, really, really big sport. Aruba is one of the meccas for windsurfing. We have really great wind here, and he was consistently like beating people in the nationals and in the, these huge championships and traveling to surf and traveling to compete. And he was beating kids that were like 17, 18 when he was 12, 13 years old. Like he was really, really, really good. And then he had a moment where there was something that happened in the community. Like he had a fight with someone. He was super young. And from one day to the next, he decided that no, windsurfing isn't for me. And he didn't step back on the, he didn't get back up on the board. After that, it would take him like, you know, uh, 10 years to start surfing again. And he had this massive opportunity to take his life somewhere and then had this one little hiccup, right? One like bump in the road and went, ah. And I also think it's a teenage thing, you know, like when we're teenagers, we're very quick to make these fast decisions based on, you know, like momentary things. But it's interesting that I'm kind of, the more of this kind of work that I'm doing, the more I realize that actually, like I chose a husband that's, that is more similar to me than I thought. Yeah, and I, th I find it kind of fascinating. But so what does it do, you know? And I kind of know, I feel like almost every podcast episode I sit here and I go, I don't know if anyone else feels the same. And then I have 200 people write me saying, hey, I feel the same. Like, you don't have to say that because like, I really feel it. So I know, you know, if you're listening to this, a lot of you guys are gonna resonate with this. Uh, maybe not to this degree as I'm sharing. I think I'm probably... I think I'm at an extreme. I want to believe I'm at an extreme. Like I don't I hope other people haven't lived their lives this way because it's not a fun way to live, right? To think that to be worthy of love, I have to to do things all the time. 
I have to produce something all the time. I have to succeed all the time. That's a really sad way to grow up, a really sad way to grow up. And I'm thinking about that now with my own daughter every single day, man, you know, how can I raise a daughter who, of course, when she does something great, like I praise her, you know, and of course we, we learn to set boundaries and, and all of these things that we're working with. I mean, she's only two and a half, but that also when she fails, also when she isn't doing anything special at all, like just from her existence in my life, just her being here, that's enough. Like just her being, that's it. And she's worthy of all the love, like fuck, more love than I can produce in this world. Like she's worthy of all of it. And I think it's literally just being present with her in that way. Like that's how I instill that in her, loving on her all the time, being there for her all the time, hugging her all the time, kissing her, being present, playing with her, spending time with her, not with the idea of learning stuff or getting good at something or learning our ABCs or whatever, but just playing to play, just being there to be there, cuddling, being close, like loving on her as much as I possibly can. Like that unconditional love, that love that we give with no, no expectation, there's nothing in return. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> knocking on wood again, hopefully, you know, not having to move through the kinds of traumas and challenges that my parents did when I was that age, hopefully, but who fucking knows? You know, we get what we get and then we do what we got to do. But right now, this concept of failure. So, of course, I'm sitting with it now because of all of these things that I'm unpacking in myself and in my life. But this kind of big thing that we had that I've, and I've shared it in the events that we just did on tour. I've mentioned it, I think, on the podcast, but I know I wanted to do a little bigger of a session on it. I think I could do an entire second podcast on this because I think we're running out of time almost, but we decided to close our cafe. We decided to close our restaurant. I, I always call it a restaurant because we were a full service restaurant. Dennis was really serious about like, it's not a restaurant, it's a cafe because it made him feel less overwhelmed about what we were doing. But we closed Nourish Cafe. It's from, you know, from a week, pa a week back. It's totally closed to the public. Um, we're still, you know, serving meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner to all of our teacher trainings and retreats and things like that. But we closed as a public business. And why did we do that? Well, because we fucking failed <laughs> at it. And I can say that so confidently as a restaurant owner, a cafe owner, I completely, utterly failed. Oh my God. I, I, I had no idea the amount of work it would take to go into that line of work, line of business. I was in so over my head and was really, I think, I don't know, a little gullible around like the whole, how easy I thought that that would be. I can look at it now and almost laugh. And we have been killing ourselves. Oh my God. For the past, yeah, since we opened, which was January 1st, 2017. So almost three years we have been killing ourselves trying to make this cafe work. And in my head, you know, we're a super busy studio. We have tons of people here all the time, every day. To me, it makes total sense. Like people go to yoga and then they want to eat something. Like that's how I work. We go to yoga. I want to have a smoothie. I want to have a coffee. I want to eat some pancakes. I want to whatever, like have a salad. And it was sounded like such a simple idea in my mind. I thought we would, we would execute that really well. Turns out wasn't that easy. And what was supposed to be this nice addition to our regular core business 
started taking over all of our lives and became this draining, draining, draining part of our business where we just couldn't make it work. We have gone through, I don't know how many chefs in this kitchen. Uh, We've brought in people from abroad to try to take it over, to try to revamp it. We've changed the menu a thousand times. We've never really were able to find a great manager for the cafe. So we never had that one person who was great, who could run it, but it was always all of us. Um, together with the studio manager and us, like trying to on the side make this whole, which actually should have been a separate part of the business, like on its own PL, on its own, like totally own business name, but it wasn't that. So we ended up, you know, losing an insane amount of money. Oh my God, we lost so much money on this cafe. I can't, I don't even want to talk about it because it's so painful. And not just that, like, you know, that's a result of, of that struggle, but realizing that the amount of energy spent on a part of the business that wasn't working and that never worked, right? And also that isn't a core part of our offering. Like it isn't a core part of our business. It's not what we do. I do yoga. (laughs) That's my thing. Yoga, meditation, healing, community building, like creating the most epic, safe, beautiful space for community. Like that's my thing, right? I can run a yoga studio, piece of cake, Okay, I take that back. It's not a piece of cake. It's fucking hard, but I can do it, right? We have a boutique. That's Dennis's thing. He's super good at it. He's been, you know, in retail like half his life. You know, we can do that. That's fine. Um, Restaurant business, like I've waitressed (laughs) for many years of my life. You know, I like to cook at home. One, I have never been the waitress working, serving tables, waiting tables in this cafe. And two, I've never been the chef in the kitchen either. So those two things never really served us in any way, other than the fact that I know what I want as a good restaurant experience, right? That's not really enough to run a restaurant. Like I got to tell you, anyone who's out there thinking like, "Mm, I like food, I can run a restaurant. No, no, not not the same things, right? Requires like a totally different kind of skill set. But just realizing how much energy went into this area of our business where every day we would find ourselves in some sort of massive discussion or a disappointment or a mess, right? Or have like inconsistent food come out of the kitchen or like problems with our employees and, you know, costs super high and then we're wasting like ton of food and, you know, every day is something else that, you know, we finally came to the conclusion and it's been all year discussing this all year. It's basically been me trying to convince Dennis to, to let it go, which has been really hard for him and why, and this is also how we're different. I got to the place of, yeah, we can't do it. Like, let's close. And then I suddenly start thinking about, oh my God, like, what are people going to think, right? People are going to think that we failed. And I had to sit with that. People are going to think that we failed. Ooh, like that doesn't feel good for me to, to share that. Like, ooh, and then it just hit me like, people are going to think that we failed. We we did fail. <laughs> like, we totally failed. Okay, so what does it feel like for me and my heart in this moment to acknowledge that? Not just to the world or whatever, but to myself. Like, hey, I set out to do something that I really wanted to pull off, that I really wanted to work, that I really, really, really wanted to succeed in. And I failed. I couldn't do it. I tried really hard. I really did. And I couldn't do it. And then sitting in that space. Hmm. Was it the end of the world? No. (laughs) Do people still love me? Am I still a lovable person? Yeah. 
(laughs) that any, you know, earth shattering, life changing things come out of, of failing at this one thing that I set out to do? No, (laughs) life continues, right? Does it, hasn't changed me as a person, hasn't, you know, changed, you know, my sense of worthiness. I don't know what I thought would happen if I would actually allow myself to sink into failure, like immerse myself in failure. I don't know what I thought would happen. Like the whole world would implode. Everyone would look at me and realize, ha, I knew it. She's a failure. (laughs) Didn't happen, right? Didn't happen. And at the end of the day, what's more important is not how the world looks at me, right? But how I look at myself. And it took, of course, it's taken this whole year and it's been part of why this year has been super, super, super challenging. But to realize that my worth doesn't lie in the things that I produce. My worth doesn't lie in whether or not I fail or succeed at the things I set out to do in the world. What matters isn't what I do, but who I am. I'm going to fucking tattoo that on my brain. What matters is not what I do, but who I am. What matters is not what I do, but who I am am. Oh, I need to hear that every day. I need to tell myself that every day because it's a limiting belief that's been holding me back and that's tiring as fuck to keep up. I'm done with it. You know, I'm so done with it. But yeah, so we closed and we had to let four people go. Man, you know, and that's been a big one, huge one, huge one. Um, we never had to, you know, sit down and, and fire someone, like let someone go. We've had contractors that we've, you know, worked with and people that have come and gone through the business. But in this like major sense, like having to actually sit down and, and fire people for the reason that like we can't, we can't pay your salaries anymore. We're closing the cafe. This whole section of the business is going to close. It's been so hard. It's been so hard. And I wish we could have sustain that space. I wish we could have that part of the business be this thriving place for community where we serve epic food and we have an epic team and everything is just so good and easy. It hasn't been. So at the end of the day, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And for me making that decision to, Hey, I got to cut some losses here so that we can continue to thrive and, you know, pay out the salaries to all the many people that work in the part of the business that actually works well for us. Yeah, it's been super hard, but also this right now, even talking about it feels like, feels like growth. I don't know. What if in acknowledging that I failed, I'm succeeding? What if, if in owning this failure, (laughs) I'm succeeding in another way? Like I'm learning and growing in another way by letting myself fail in this one part of my life by softening into the fact that it's okay to not be the best at everything. It's okay to not know everything. It's okay to not have everything down, right? It's okay to to not succeed at everything I do. It's okay to just be a regular fucking person, regular human being who struggles and feels sad and grateful who has successes and failures and losses and gains and and that all of life is just this beautiful space where we hold all of that and still and regardless of which space we're in, which way the pendulum swings, right? If we're on the high or on the low, that still we are worthy of love. That still we are worthy 
to be here, that we're worthy to be here, that we belong, that we're held, supported, never alone. I don't know if you needed to hear these words just now, but I really did. (laughs) I love you guys so much. If there are any, um, (laughs) any restaurateurs listening to this, owners of epic cafes who want to come in and rent our space to create an amazing vegan cafe, we are renting. (laughs) We have a space open. So just throwing that out there into the universe right now. But no, seriously, um, I love you so much. I hope you feel in your heart how lovable you are today, regardless of what you do. Um, That in this moment, the way you are here now, you are so worthy of love. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, huge thanks to my sponsors, Sakara and Bob's Red Mill. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week. <laughs>